in honor of Mother's Day, let's think of the children. Specifically, is the GOP in danger of losing millennials forever? Absolutely not. We will mine the hidden kafefe in the latest poll numbers and explain why the kids are all right. Well, some kids are all right, actually. The overgrown adult kids, by whom I mean Democrat politicians, they continue to make fools of themselves. That'll be fun, too. Then, on this day in history, Lewis and Clark depart for their journey across the continent, joined by an Indian mother and gold dollar icon, Sacagawea. Manifest destiny and more. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. Oh, this is a big topic. This is a big one. There's some disagreement on the right about this now, whether we're about to lose millennials forever or if, as I think, everything is just going great for uh, the GOP on young voters or is about to go right. Before we get to that, before we talk about how much we're thriving right now in politics, eh, I want to thank a wonderful sponsor of ours, Thrive Market. I love Thrive Market. Thrivemarket.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L. Thrive Market is so good. All I do for you people is I give you food and drinks and I just give, I give, I give so much to you. Thrive Market is really good. It's a revolutionary online marketplace on a mission to make healthy living easy and affordable for everyone. If it were up to me, if I were left to my own devices, I'd probably be lying in a gutter drinking milkshakes made of like queso and just froth, you know, just sort of dirt and froth. Uh, fortunately, I get Thrive Market and these guys are so, so good. You can shop for thousands of the best-selling non-GMO foods and natural products, always at 25 to 50% below traditional retail prices. Now, when you go to stores, these things are very expensive. You go to Thrive, you're going to get a, a much lower price. Before, in the old days, you know, I was basically only eating GMO. I was just eating pure GMO. Just, that's, you, know, you don't want that. That doesn't feel good for you. So uh, it's really, really good. You get snacks, vitamins, supplements, personal care products, eco-friendly cleaning supplies, safe, non-toxic beauty products, just everything you need for your kitchen. You get it right to your door. Filter the catalog by your values and dietary preferences. Are you paleo, gluten-free, vegan, kosher, ketogenic? I'm all of those. Uh, you can shop for 90 plus values, including non-GMO, sustainably farmed, fair trade certified, BPA free, on and on and on, because Thrive Market does the homework for you. Uh, really, really good. More than 70% of Thrive Market catalog cannot be found on Amazon. I love just even the olive oil. They have this superb olive oil on the site. Being a Gavone Italian myself, I use a lot of olive oil when I cook. I use about three bottles per dish and uh, I love there. It is my favorite olive oil. Uh, it's the largest retailer in the country that sells exclusively non-GMO groceries. Let me give you $60 of free organic groceries plus free shipping and a 30-day trial. 60 bucks of free, really good food. You would be very foolish not to do this. <laughs> uh, users will get $20 off their first three orders of $49 or more, plus free shipping. Uh, and most, most shoppers spend more than $49 on the website anyway. There's just too much good stuff there. Go to thrivemarket.com slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, to get your instant $60 off free groceries. Thrive, T-H-R-I-V-E, market.com, slash Michael, M-I-C-H-A-E-L, and get $60 of free groceries. Do it now. Okay, are the kids all right? Are the kids all right? Are those darn kids ruining our country? Or are the kids all right? Uh, we're talking about millennials, by the way, for those who are unfamiliar with them. I, maybe you've read about them a little bit. Here's just a short informational video produced about millennials by the United States Census. Here it is. 
A millennial can be defined as anyone born between 1982 and 2000, or anyone who thinks loving Sriracha or Austin, Texas counts as a personality. Millennials crave things like instant gratification, authentic experiences, and for some reason we haven't figured out yet, improv comedy. Here's one millennial who has a parakeet with 9 million followers on Snapchat. Here's another who single-handedly started the hashtags that canceled 12 network TV shows she found offensive. And now I'm told she identifies as a man, so I'm being fired. Hello, I'm your new announcer. And actually, he was just about done. Thank you and good day. That's incredible documentary footage produced by the federal government or by Family Guy. I know it's one, one, one of those two things. <laughs> it's too real, though. It could be a documentary. Millennials, they are the much maligned uh, group of people that are my age. And they're much maligned, mostly rightly so. <laughs> they mostly deserve the scorn that they get. But I come bearing good news. So Ben wrote a piece at the Weekly Standard last week. And it was observing the leftward trend of millennials, or rather how the millennials find themselves politically on the left. And that's true. I don't, I don't disagree with that part. But as is sometimes the case, Ben is a little more pessimistic about the future. You know, he's not. And I am like just shooting off Kofefe pistols. I'm so excited because I think the millennials are making the, the correct, and, and the generation after the millennials, the younger generation, are poised to move to the right. So Ben observes in his piece that the millennials have stayed on the left. They haven't moved. Uh, they haven't shifted radically to the right. Uh, they've become less religious. They support a lot of gay stuff and pot. Those are two really big issues for them. And uh, his piece cites this survey that came out in January that uh, 82% of Republican voters between the ages of 18 and 24 want President Trump to be primaried in 2020. Not necessarily that they want him to lose a primary, but they want him to be prim uh, primaried. So that's a terrifying figure, isn't it? 82%, what does that mean? Well, it is worth pointing out. This was a survey from five months ago. That was before the North Korea deal, or the North Korea diplomacy, before the hostages got released, before the Iran deal, before the economy has continued to explode, before the Kanye awakening, which has moved some numbers. Also, this is just one random survey, monkey survey, which did not release its methodology. So forgive me if I'm a little skeptical of it. Also in the Weekly Standard last week, another friend of the show, Kristen Soltis Anderson, uh, wrote a similar piece also in the Weekly Standard. It points out that we reacted uh, very harshly to Pajama Boy. You remember that guy? <laughs> Do you this is during the Obama 2012 campaign. And it was that guy who basically just looked like me. He was wearing these little glasses, but he had on a onesie pajama outfit and he was holding hot cocoa. And he said, make sure to talk about health insurance. You know, and it was it's just the perfect picture of this sort of pathetic millennial generation. But uh, Kristen says that we reacted too harshly. We've heaped too much scorn on millennials and Republicans need to chase them or we're going to lose them forever or something. I don't see any of that. I, I don't really buy that picture at all. I see a much, much rosier picture. Kristen writes in her article, quote, Ronald Reagan was able to win an enormous share of the youth vote for his re-election campaign in the 1980s. And as recently as the election between George Bush and John Kerry, young vo voters were still somewhat narrowly divided between the two political parties. It is only in the last decade that a new and dramatic right-left old young divide has emerged. So you've got to listen to the wording carefully. We can just run through really quickly in the last, uh, since 1980, how the young voter breakdown, 18 to 21, or in some cases, 18 to 29, when that, those data were not available, how the young voters broke Republican 
for, versus Democrat. In 1980, Ronald Reagan versus Jimmy Carter. It was 44 for the Republican, 45 for the Democrat. That's among young voters. 1984, the numbers changed dramatically. 61 for Reagan, 39 for his opponent, Walter Mondale. That is a 40 percentage surge. A 40% surge is only uh, however many percentage points, but a 40% surge from that 44 percent for Reagan in 1980. Really big. Why did that happen? We'll get to that in a second. 1988, George Bush uh, versus uh, Michael Dukakis. Uh, 53% of young voters went for Bush, 47 for Dukakis. Pretty close. You know, he's still riding Reagan's coattails. 1992, George Bush and Bill Clinton. Here is where the Democrats broke away with the youth vote in part because the economy wasn't doing, you know, wasn't doing great. And it was the focus of the campaign. Also, Bill Clinton was young, very charismatic. George Bush senior, not quite as charismatic. So that election was 33 to 46. Clinton had a big lead among young voters. Then uh, Bill Clinton and Bob Dole, that lead remained. It actually expanded. Clinton got 55% to uh, Bob Dole's 35% of the young voters vote. 2000, it was evenly split because Al Gore is like the worst candidate in history. <laughs> so it's 47-47. 2004, uh, John Kerry walked away with it again. 56% of the young voters went for John Kerry, just 43% for George Bush. Then comes Obama. Obama just destroys it. He just obliterates it. 66% of young voters for, jo- for Barack Obama, 32% for John McCain. That trend maintains during Mitt Romney in 2012. So that was 60 for Barack Obama, 37 for Mitt Romney, and Donald Trump. Now, if these are to be believed that the millennials are moving further and further away, you would expect Donald Trump to do even worse among millennials, right? Wrong. That's not what happened. It was still a a pretty wide gap, but he closed the gap significantly. Hillary only got 55% of voters, 18 to 29. Donald Trump got 36%. So he basically maintained the Mitt Romney amount. He got more than John McCain did, and he was able to siphon off some support from Democrats. Donald Trump did better among millennials relative to his opponent than either John McCain or Mitt Romney, which shows that this trend is not inexorable. It's not constantly moving to the left. Something else is going on. Donald Trump also did better among Hispanics relative to his opponent than Mitt Romney. Why do I bring that up? This is an important figure in the millennial story. So it's not that Donald Trump did very well among Hispanics, but he did relatively better than Mitt Romney did. A lot of this is not so much a generational question as it is an immigration question. So uh, since 1980, since that Reagan election that we're all talking about, the Hispanic uh, population in America has nearly tripled. It's increased by 2.7 times. Now, that uh, population, which has exploded, is also extremely young. So 60% of those Hispanic immigrants are millennials or younger. So this huge exploding demographic seriously skews the millennial vote. Also worth noting that even up to the third generation, Hispanic immigrants to America overwhelmingly identify with Democrats. They're between three times as likely and 8.75 times as likely to identify with Democrats. So this is an overwhelming electoral advantage for Democrats. Even so, Donald Trump did relatively well among that major immigrant group, and that's reflected in part in the millennial statistic. Okay, so what's going on? This gets back to Ronald Reagan. Between 1980 and 1984, we saw a 39% surge in young voter support for Ronald Reagan. Why is that? It's because successful presidencies shape public opinion. This presidency so far, whatever you think of the tweets, whatever you think of the stupid media headlines, it's been very successful. 
Thus far, it has been very successful. Donald Trump's approval rating has been consistently higher than Barack Obama's for a long time now at their relative points in the presidency. You look day for day, Barack Obama on this day in his presidency eight years ago, Donald Trump is consistently doing as well or higher. The unemployment rate right now in the United States across the entire country is at a 44-year low. How about black unemployment? Here's the line they always use, the Democrats always use, they say, well, it's only helping the rich white men and it's not helping. Right now, black unemployment is at an all-time low. It, there is, it's not at a 44-year low. It's at an all-time low. It's the lowest ever recorded. Uh, how about on issues like civil rights? The, the NRA right now, there was this huge media onslaught of David Hogg and the, the kids in Florida and all of it was being funded by Hollywood and New York. There's huge onslaught to take away our Second Amendment rights. Right now, the NRA is getting more donations than practically ever before. They are getting their donations by the truckload. How about in just the two parties, the Republican National Committee, the Democrat National Committee? The RNC right now has $40 million more in cash than the Democrats have. That is a huge disparity. Why is that? In part, Democrats have no message. What are they going to run on? What on earth could they run on? Dick Morris who is a Republican strategist, but he also advised uh, President Clinton. He says that there is no blue wave coming, that there is a red wave coming, and that red wave is going to be red because of the Democrat blood in the water. <laughs> he said, this is not what we think. And by the way, lest you think that I'm just putting a positive spin on this, it's just hopeful thinking, I just blew too many lines of kafefe before the show and I'm overdosing on it. That's not the case. The other numbers bear this out. There was a recent poll, I think it's just out today, from Reuters, uh, maybe it was out uh, last week, uh, le Reuters left-leaning outlet. It shows that millennials are leaving the Democrat party in droves. So they're leaving the Democrats. Where are they going? A new poll from Morning Consult, that's another left-leaning outlet. It shows that the Democrats are in trouble in November in the midterm elections. That poll shows that Democrats could lose up to nine seats in the Senate. That would be colossal because all of history tells us that uh, Republicans should lose the midterms. Republicans should lose the House, maybe lose the Senate. They should just lose. That's just what happens when you have a one party controlling the White House. And yet, that's not what we're seeing possibly bear out. If we were able to pick up seats in the Senate, if we were able to hold the line in the House, that would be colossal. That would be a mandate to govern. There's a new poll out today by Zogby Analytics, also not a right-wing uh, analysis firm, which says that that blue wave that they'd all been promising us, remember it's coming, get ready, here comes the blue wave, that it's collapsing, that uh, trust in Democrats is collapsing nationally. And here's the kicker, folks, because uh, support for Democrats nationally has decreased by 4%, but it's been especially pronounced, that, that collapse has been especially pronounced among millennials and racial minorities. Those very people that we we're supposed to be afraid that we're losing forever, they are fleeing the Democrats. Democrats lost 14% of their support among millennials and 20% uh, of their support among black Americans since January, just the last five months. And who knows what those numbers look like more recently as we've had these extraordinary foreign policy accomplishments, great economic news, and this cultural cracking where you see Kanye West biggest pop star in the entire country, maybe in the world, saying, yeah, I like Trump. He's my boy. I really like him. He's my, he's my brother. I love him. What happens then? What happens when you have even Chance the Rapper who doesn't like Donald Trump, but he's a very popular entertainer saying, you know, black people don't have to vote for Democrats. What happens then? This is a cracking of a narrative that has been used to, to uh, keep people in line for so, so long. And that popular culture is cracking. 
So overall, support for Trump is, uh, or support for the Democrats rather, is down uh, 4% nationally. What does that mean? If you take out minority voters and you take out the millennials, that means that the Democrat stalwarts, the Democrat diehards, are decrepit old white hippies. And of course that's the case. We see that with Hillary Clinton. We obviously see it with Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders is 485 years old right now, I think. You know, he... who else do they have? What else do they have? That is their, these are the guys they nominate. Who do they run in 2016? Joe Biden, Hillary Clinton, Bernie Sanders, you know, just the oldest, most boring white people ever. That's not the narrative that the mainstream media is portraying, but that's what we're seeing reflected in polling. And it's what we're seeing with our own eyes. You know, you, you can believe your lying eyes sometimes. Conservatives try to be pessimistic. That's just sort of in our nature sometimes, I think, because, and it's not really a pessimism. But that is the tendency. What it really is is saying, this is a fallen world. Sometimes things get better. Sometimes things get worse. And there is that old, get off my lawn. Everything's terrible. Kids these days, you know, that attitude. I don't buy it. I think the kids are all right. I think they're doing really good. Millennials grew up in the shadow of George W. Bush's presidency. And I I like George W. Bush. I support that presidency. But the mainstream media was able to successfully portray it is absolutely terrible with very little pushback. They, the, the White House, the Bush White House didn't want to fight back. Quite a difference with Donald Trump. He fights back on every little syllable they utter. But they, they were able to paint it that way. And of course, at the end of the Bush presidency, we had a financial crisis. And so when millennials think about the Bush years and the Republican Party, they think of economic collapse and they think of the ridiculous narrative painted by the mainstream media, which is demonstrably untrue. The lies that they spread about Bush with regard to war, with regard to domestic policy, with regard to social policy. But that doesn't matter because that's what, that's all that people remember. Now we're seeing, huh, maybe that narrative isn't true. You know, the millennials grew up with Barack Obama. The mainstream media depicted him as a God. He depicted himself as a God. He said, I'm going to part the seas. The oceans are going to calm if you elect me. And everyone else played along on the world stage. They gave him a Nobel Peace Prize for absolutely no reason. So this is the image that they've been brought up in and they don't have a long historical memory. Now the, the millennials are getting their first taste of economic prosperity. Because they were told, oh, unemployment, 2% or less economic growth, that's the new normal. Get used to it. That's the, so that's what they thought. Now they're saying, oh, well, we're blasting past 3% economic growth. Things are going well. Record low unemployment. Ooh, oh, I guess there is a different way. Maybe, maybe that mainstream media, maybe those, those guys are liars. Maybe the narrative that they've been telling me isn't true. Oh, I can see that it's not true because Donald Trump is using his gigantic platform just on Twitter which is bigger than the New York Times platform, to point out all the times that they lie. That is great. My, my take on the kids these days, it is cool, man. Keep calm and kofefe. Now, I should, I should clarify that because the kids, the actual kids, you know, people, teenagers up through their 20s, they're doing all right. I'm pretty pleased with them. The adult kids, the overgrown, buffoonish children who are Democrat politicians, those guys aren't doing that well. So here's more evidence that the Democrats have absolutely nothing this election cycle. Here is Pat Davis, Democrat running for Congress in New Mexico's first congressional district. He just released this ad. The NRA, their pro-gun policies have resulted in dead children, dead mothers, and dead fathers. I'm Pat Davis, and I approve this message because if Congress won't change our gun laws, we're changing Congress. Yeah, yeah, you tell him, Pat. 
Yeah, by the way, in the ad that he ran, it's not bleeped. We had to bleep it because, you know, we have some self-respect, but he didn't bleep it. The first word is the F word. And this is what you get from Democrats now. It's the same thing as shout your abortion. It's all they've got is just profanity. As though, our, as though the popular culture weren't profane, right? As though that's subversive. The whole culture is profane. The thing that's subversive now is to use words that are nice <laughs> and that aren't, you know, swear words or something. But that's all they've got. They say, F you, F you. That's not an argument. F you is not a political argument. But what else do they have? Everything's going so well. They've been so thoroughly discredited that all they have is F you. It's getting really tedious. Even the left is admitting that it's getting tedious, by the way. The, the Saturday Night Live cold opens. They, uh, if anyone still watches it, no one still watches it, but we sometimes see the clips on the news. Saturday Night Live cold opens have just been basically celebrity cameos and the Alec Baldwin, very subpar Donald Trump impression. That's all they've been for the last like 50 years now at this point. Check out the Mother's Day cold open that we saw this past weekend. You like the show, right, Mom? I do, except for all the political stuff. We get it. All right, thank you very much. Uh, this is my mom, Sylvia. Mom, do you ever think that I'd be on SNL someday? No. Awesome. I remember I was in that production of The Crucible in high school. All right, yeah. You know, The Crucible's a lot like the witch hunt against President Trump. OK, don't love that. Let's go. <laughs> Uh, this is my mom, Cindy. Uh, mom, I love you because you always give me the best advice. Thanks, Luke. Here's some more. Enough with the Trump jokes. Okay. Mom, I don't write those. And why doesn't SNL ever talk about crooked Hillary? Mom, I'm so new here. Please do not do this to me. So even SNL has to admit, and SNL hates this guy. When Donald Trump won the election, they played this long piano song, this ballad, as they were tearfully crying about Hillary losing. That wasn't a joke. They actually did that sincerely. But even they have to admit, gosh, maybe, maybe we're going a little crazy with this. <laughs> maybe people don't love it when we just screech and whine and yell about politics all the time. Even Jimmy Kimmel, speaking of screeching and whining every single night, Jimmy Kimmel admitted this to Deadline, to the a trades paper out here in Hollywood. He said that he's going to steer his jokes away from Trump jokes at an upcoming show business industry event because people have had enough. They've had enough of it. Jerry Seinfeld doesn't do Trump jokes. Uh, recently, David Letterman asked Seinfeld on his show, he said, are you doing a lot of Trump jokes? And he said, no, I'm not interested. I want to tell jokes about raisins. I because Trump jokes, they're easy, they're cheap, and the people are sick of it. Another overgrown child, <laughs> former future president Hillary Clinton, she has not gotten this memo. She didn't get it. She is still going around just whining about how she lost the election, how terrible everything is. Here's a clip uh, of her recently in Australia. The double standard is alive and well, and it is more difficult for women in public positions. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about politics, but it's true in business, it's true in the media. It's just true across the board uh, because there are uh, expectations about women's uh, appearance that are deep in our uh, collective DNA uh, so that people feel free to uh, comment either favorably or unfavorably about hairstyles, clothing, fashions, and all the rest of it. Are you kidding me? We <laughs> Are you... That's your example. You're because you're, you're whining, making all of these excuses and saying, I didn't win because it wasn't fair, blah, blah, blah. And the example you're using of the double standard 
is that women have their hair made fun of. When you ran against Donald Trump, the the man who possesses the most mocked hairdo in maybe the history of the world. (laughs) Everyone, since the 80s, people have been making jokes about Donald Trump's hair. But Hillary Clinton lives in this fantasy world where everyone's against her. People only criticize women. They only make fun of women. They only do. What are you talking about? How how about all of the statues that went up in New York showing Donald Trump's grotesque body, allegedly grotesque physique, and all of the cartoons, and they're all, no, you're just, you're just, she's, First of all, she's isolated, so everything is just in this really tiny bubble for her. But it's it's not that it's unfair, Hillary. It's not that other people don't get made fun of and don't get put through the ringer. It's that they deal with it with any bit of grace whatsoever, which you have never, ever been able to do. Hillary Clinton went on, by the way. She said, quote, there is still a very large proportion of the population that is uneasy with women in positions of leadership. There is this fear. There is this anger, even rage about women seeking power, exercising power. Okay. So by the way, when you look for the video of this on the internet where they put this up, the comments are disabled. That tells you all you need to know. When the comments are disabled, it's because the people putting up, they know they're like, oh, this probably isn't true. Oh, uh, this is going to get a big blowback, isn't it? Oh, uh, that. So your first thought is just like, oh, good grief, you know. The second thought is, thank goodness this woman isn't president because she hates her countrymen. And she's criticizing U.S. foreign policy abroad. She's criticizing the Iran deal. She's criticizing North Korea. It's very unpatriotic. And it's her never-ending campaign. This is the never-ending campaign, but good. I actually, I mean, it's so disgusting. It's so undignified, but keep going, Hillary. Keep going. Stay on TV. I hope you do. People don't like this. (laughs) They don't like, you're turning people off from your own party. That's fine by me. That is absolutely fine by me. There's a good, before we break, I'll draw this analogy. They're trying to get Trump like they were trying to get Richard Nixon. They just hate him. They're trying to get him. There was a good piece in Bloomberg last week on Watergate and Drawing the parallels, they said, you know, the Democrats won Watergate. They won this political battle. We think of it as a legal battle. It was really a political battle. Uh, They they, uh, won the political fight to get Richard Nixon to resign. And it's because they had huge majorities in in the Senate and in the House. So they were able to force him to resign because he couldn't survive uh, an impeachment hearing. Stephen Calabresi has a good piece on how this relates to Donald Trump. Uh, he has it in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, there's a case, Morrison versus Olson, which uh, is famous both for its opinion and for its dissent. It was after the Watergate debacle, and Scalia uh, dissented here. This was all about the constitutionality of these independent councils, these special councils. Do they have too much power? Do they? So Scalia says this is unconstitutional. But even the majority opinion of the court, which has been upheld in Edmund versus the U.S., a free enterprise fund versus the public company oversight board, it's been upheld. It said that the special counsel, the independent counsel, is limited in scope. We can't have people here who can just do whatever they want and have unchecked, unlimited power in the United States. But that's what we're getting in Robert Mueller's investigation. He's indicting all sorts of people for alleged crimes that have absolutely nothing to do with his investigation, which was supposed to be about collusion with Russia during the presidential election. He's got way too much uh, power, and this is almost certainly unconstitutional. What it is an example of is Democrats once again trying to overturn a presidential election. They did it in 72. They're doing it in 2016. Richard Nixon was elected in 1972 by a landslide. He won 49 states. He won almost the entire country. He won 520 electoral votes to 17 for his opponent. 
Democrats couldn't deal with it. So a swamp creature policy analyst named Daniel Ellsberg, he stole classified documents and he gave them to the New York Times and the Washington Post. That's what he, that's, that was the big, that's how Watergate broke is a government bureaucrat stole classified documents and leaked it to the media, which had been trying to get Richard Nixon for decades. But that didn't turn out very well for Democrats. It didn't turn out very well. Sure, they got Nixon out, that's fine. And then in 1980, six years later, they were able to elect Ronald Reagan and we had basically conservative governance for 28 years. Even the presidency of Bill Clinton was relatively quite conservative. So let's say you're a, you're a regular old American who doesn't follow politics religiously. What are you seeing right now? What are you seeing? You're seeing things working. Just, just look at the embassy in Jerusalem. You're seeing on, on the walls of Jerusalem, you're seeing, thank you, President Trump. God bless President Trump. That's what you're seeing. You're seeing the president, uh, the prime minister of Israel, Netanyahu, praising Trump for real leadership. You're seeing in Korea, you're seeing South Korea give Trump credit for peace talks, possible denuclearization. You're seeing a president actually fulfilling his promises. So what does the left do, the desperate left and the desperate anti-Trump right? I think now all that's left of the anti-Trump right is Mitt Romney, basically. What do they do? They criticize how he does all of the successful things he does. So Romney now is criticizing the evangelical pastor, Robert Jeffress, for uh, speaking at the opening of the U.S. embassy in Jerusalem. He, he tweeted out, this is Romney, such a religious bigot should not be giving the prayer that opens the U U.S. Embassy in Jerusalem. And he's saying this because this pastor called Mormonism and Islam heresies, which, by the way, is the mainstream position of virtually every Christian denomination, and it's the traditional position of the church. So Romney says he's a religious bigot. Religions are exclusive, Mitt, first of all. So yes, religions say this is the way to heaven. This is the way to have a relationship with God. This is the way. And if you do this religion, then you can't do this religion. If this religion is true, then other religions are not true. That's just the nature of religion. Religions are exclusive. If, if They can't all be true at once because they make contradictory claims. So by the way, if this pastor is a bigot, then so is Mitt Romney, isn't he? Because his church makes certain claims about religion and who gets saved and how people get saved. Jenna Ellis pointed this out in the Washington Examiner. I think right now people are looking at Romney. They're looking at these Trump critics and they're saying, seriously, Donald Trump has done what so many of his predecessors promised to do and refused to do. Trump did it, took real political courage. And you're knocking him because the evangelical pastor who spoke at the opening is an evangelical pastor. Mitt Romney invented Obamacare. When he ran for Senate, he said, I, I didn't support Reagan Bush and I don't want to go back to Reagan Bush. He ran a terrible 2012 campaign. He refused to take the fight to the president. He refused to fight back at the mainstream media. He, he tried to swing the election for Hillary in 2016. You're the guy, you're the guy criticizing Donald Trump who's actually doing something to advance the conservative cause and make America great again and improve the country. And I, I think people are on, on the left right now they're looking, these lefties are looking and they're wondering, you know, we had eight years of a stagnant economy, 2% economic growth, unemployment, underemployment. Now everything is doing a lot better. And these people on the left and these millennials, people who used to be on the left and then maybe they're changing their mind a little, they're looking at their own politicians and they're saying, you told me Trump was Hitler. You told me he colluded with Russia. You promised me that Donald Trump was Satan incarnate and the world would go to hell in a handbasket if he were elected. And now everything's going great. And now the best that you guys have 
is a porn star with whom Donald Trump allegedly had a consensual dalliance a dozen years ago. That's what you've got. And I think there is a shift going on culturally. Successful presidencies shape public opinion. They are seismic events. The models are only true until they're not true. <laughs> the models only work until something happens. And in politics, things happen. And in this presidency, the only thing that you know is, is never say never because it's in a presidency of the unexpected. The millennials and young voters have not seen success like this before. So you could say, well, if the last eight years is any indication, they're going to keep moving to the left until something happens. And you know what? I think something is happening. You know what else is happening? We have to say goodbye to Facebook and YouTube. Do you hear that? Do you hear that? It, that is like bells chiming, birds singing, because it is almost time for our next episode of The Conversation, featuring me, little old me, Michael Knowles, on Tuesday. When is that? Is that tomorrow? That's tomorrow, May 15th at 5.30 Eastern, 2.30 Pacific. I will be taking all of your questions and easing your anxiety by answering you guys live on air. Every query that has burned in your hearts will be resolved. Best of all, it is an extra hour-long dose of little old me. What else could you ask for? That's pretty good. Plus, Alicia Krauss will be there too, which will be very nice. Uh, this month's episode will stream live on the Daily Wire's YouTube and Facebook pages. It will be free for everyone to watch, but only subscribers can ask the questions. To ask questions as a subscriber, log into our website, dailywire.com, head over to the conversation page, and watch the live stream. After that, just start typing into the Daily Wire chat box. There, I will answer questions as they come in for an entire hour. Once again, subscribe to get your questions answered by me, little old me, Michael Knowles, on Tuesday, May 15th at 5.30 Eastern, 2.30 Pacific, and join the conversation. Now, you might notice I sound a little stuffy today. I think it's because, well, Covfefe is a hell of a drug. Sometimes it gets lodged up there. It's going to impair my ability to speak. But I, hopefully we're going to be able to clear that out by tomorrow, so I'll be able to do this just fine. We have an excellent disdain history. A, a much misunderstood part of American history that doesn't really get covered right now. We will discuss it talking about the Lewis and Clark expedition, but you have to go to dailywire.com. What do you get? You get me, you get the Andrew Clavin show, you get the Ben Shapiro show, you get to ask questions in the mailbag, you get the conversation, which I just told you about. Hey, hey, you guys, millennials and racial minorities, they'll probably just uniformly vote for Democrats, right? Right? Is that... Oh no, the polling shows that they're moving rightward. Oh no. God, I can't drink this down fast enough. I can't drink, as the, as the polls come out, more and more polls come out, more and more great news from the Trump administration, this is going to overflow. Get your leftist tears tumbler before you and your family drown. We will be right back with this day in history. Go to dailywire.com. All right, this day in history. I've cleared, I think I've cleared out a little bit of the Kofefe. Let's get to this day in history. On this day in history, we still have a little bit of time. In 1804, Meriwether Lewis and William Clark at the commission of President Thomas Jefferson launched their expedition to explore the Northwest American continent from the Mississippi River to the Pacific Ocean. I don't know that people really study Lewis and Clark anymore, but it's a pretty crazy part of American history. This, this happened in... Uh, just one year after the Louisiana Purchase. So Thomas Jefferson buys the Louisiana Territory. That doubles the size of the United States. So we now have doubled the country within, you know, just a year has, has changed uh, the size of the country at this point. And Jefferson says to Lewis and Clark, okay, we need you to explore this unexplored continent. 
and really claim a little bit more land for America, but go see what you can find. The core of discovery, as it was called, Lewis and Clark's uh, group of people, that included 45 men, and 33 of whom made it the whole journey. Some of them hopped off by choice or circumstance along the way. Uh, the, the Lewis and Clark expedition started up the Missouri River in a 55-foot-long keelboat with two smaller boats. Six months into the expedition, they met uh, Toussaint uh, Charbonneau, a French-Canadian fur trader, and you know him better as the husband of Sacagawea. I really want to bring this up because of Sacagawea. You, you might remember, if you've been around the last 20 years, that's, she's the woman on those gold dollar coins, and much has been made of Sacagawea. She was the indispensable part of the voyage. She was really the one who led them. We owe everything to Sacagawea, but she doesn't get the respect she deserves. Sac it was all Sacagawea, right? So we'll get back to her. The Lewis and Clark expedition spent the winter in North Dakota. They crossed through Montana. They passed the rapids of Clearwater and uh, Snake Rivers in canoes. They finally reached the Columbia River. That took them to the Pacific Ocean. They made it there on November 8th, 1805. They finally made it all the way west. These, were, these two guys were the first Europeans ever to reach the Pacific by land. This is a monumental expedition. It took two and a half years. They brought back a lot of information about the land, and they brought back a U.S. claim to the Oregon Territory. But there's been a lot of revisionism here. So they say about Lewis and Clark's westward expansion, they say that Sacagawea was the guide. Now, actual scholars of the expedition, such as Ella Clark and Margot Edmonds, they say that Sacagawea was not the guide for the expedition. This is perfectly clear. These were incredible uh, uh, pioneersmen. These were incredible navigators, Lewis and Clark. They would have made it just fine. Sacagawea did assist a little bit. She helped out with certain trading uh, ventures, but she was not central here. Lewis and Clark also did not consider her central. <laughs> Lewis and Clark would variously call her squar and savage along the journey. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't this uh, uh, Disney version of what she was doing. It also gets to the crazy idea that America did not intend to realize itself westward. So now we look back at Western expansion and the way it's taught in schools is, oh, yes, we had the country and then they just kept invading other lands and taking it and they shouldn't have done it and we, they didn't mean to do it. It wasn't, you know, this wasn't part of America. There's this idea now that the founders of the country, they actually really wanted to keep America precisely the size that it was. That westward expansion, that wasn't part of the American project. You know, Jefferson just got a good deal on the Louisiana Territory, and they just, it kind of happened, but we didn't mean for it to happen. And so all expansionism is bad. We shouldn't do that. We should keep to ourselves. We want to just isolate ourselves from everywhere else in the world. Not true. The entire American project is a project of Western expansion. It began because a bunch of people in the old world decided to explore the new world. It began because Christopher Columbus wanted to... Uh, following his deep religious convictions, wanted to bring the glory of God to a new land and also find some new roots and get some gold for his own civilization. Uh, then, obviously, the pilgrims made it to Plymouth because they were realizing westward. They were, they were conquering and settling down in a new world. Uh, how about even in the founding era? George Washington made his entire fortune precisely on Western expansion. He made 
a zillion dollars in roughly on the Ohio company, which surveyed land in Ohio, made a lot of money getting land for himself. Until Donald Trump, Washington was actually the wealthiest president in U.S. history. He died with an estate worth $780,000, now, which doesn't sound like a lot. When you translate that into today's dollars, that would be about $14.5 million. But that actually doesn't tell the whole story because if you factor in relative wealth, so Washington's relative wealth to his countrymen and the rest of the world, a, a, a unit of measure called the prestige value of money, then it, actually his wealth was around $429 million. It's pretty good. That's, he made a lot of money going westward. Uh, during the French and Indian War, the, they were able to recruit soldiers by offering 200,000 acres of frontier land for those who joined. Fight for our country? You get to move west because that's the way we're going. Washington himself got 23,000 of those acres for himself in West Virginia. Jefferson was urging westward expansion as, as early at least as 1786. This was the project. This was moving westward. That's what the country was meant to do. Now, people will tell you today, on the right and the left, some of the isolationists on the right and the lefties who say, oh, we took the land from those Indians who took the land from other Indians before them and who took the land from other Indians before them. They forget that part. They say, oh, it was unjust. It was unjust acquisition. Robert Frost, I think I may have read this on the show before. Robert Frost got this exactly right in a poem that he read at, at Kennedy's inauguration. Uh, Frost read, the land was ours before we were the lands. She was our land more than a hundred years before we were her people. She was ours in Massachusetts, in Virginia, but we were England's, still colonials, possessing what we, were, what we still were unpossessed by, possessed by what we now no more possessed. Something we were withholding made us weak until we found out that it was ourselves we were withholding from our land of living, and forthwith found salvation and surrender. Such as we were, we gave ourselves outright. The deed of gift was many deeds of war, to the land vaguely realizing westward, but still unstoried, artless, unenhanced. Such as she was, such as she would become. This is the American project. Bigger, grander, greater, expansive. This is an American project. We're seeing hints of that come back. We're seeing, this is the line that Reagan used, it's the line that Trump used for that same reason. Make America great again. You don't need to be small, you don't need to keep to yourself. You don't, this is great, a rising tide lifts all ships and it's, it can bring seismic changes in politics and in people's lives. I think that's what we're seeing here, a very kofefe way to start the week. Come back tomorrow, we have a really cool guest. I was fangirling all day when we pre-taped this interview. Really good guest in tomorrow. I'm going to try to clear all the kofefe out of my nasal cavity in the meantime. <laughs> until then, until tomorrow, I will see you and on the conversation. I'm Michael Knowles. This is The Michael Knowles Show. See you tomorrow. The Michael Knowles Show is a Daily Wire forward publishing production. Executive producer, Jeremy Boring. Senior producer, Jonathan Hay. Supervising producer, Mathis Glover. Our technical producer is Austin Stevens. Edited by Alex Zingaro. Audio is mixed by Mike Coromina. Hair and makeup is by Jesua Olvera. Copyright Forward Publishing 2018.